0: of issues that just has not been systematic before before this time you're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor
1: With you. I say maybe. Maybe I'm in love
0: with you. Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers, and I'm T Hetzel. I'm so happy today to be talking virtually via technology with Patricia Smith. Um, Patricia, welcome. Welcome to Living Writers.
2: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: Well well thanks so much for doing this today. I've been so looking forward to speaking with you. Where are you talking to us from?
2: I am talking to you from the hamlet of Howell, New Jersey. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> where so where where is
0: where is the hamlet of Howell?
2: <laughs> uh it is the southern part of Central Jersey or the northern part of South Jersey, which means it's probably about 15 minutes from the Jersey Shore.
0: Oh, okay. Okay, good. And do you do you often get to the shore? Do you get to the sea?
2: No, not really. I mean, most of the time when we would go, uh, there was a great dog beach there. We'd take my dogs. Um, I'm not really that much of a beach person. I'm not a Jersey beach person anyway. Yeah. You know, um so, no, I mean, we haven't really utilized it as much as we could be doing.
0: Well, I guess you never know, right? You never know what's never know. around. And, and the great outdoors is looking like a, bit, <laughs> a bit better nowadays. Just <laughs> well, a little, yeah. How are things with, with you during the time of COVID? Like how, yeah.
2: It's fine. I, I recently did a, a radio program with my husband. He uh, writes crime novels. And so they were asking us, I think it was called partners in the time of confinement or something about how we were getting along. And I, I was usually on the road quite a bit. Like I'm, I'm gone probably almost half a year because I'll go places for like a week or I'll go someplace for three weeks. I'll go to a, a university and have we're a teaching. residency and be there too. And, and I have yeah. an actual teaching job, right? Uh, so it's been nice. It's been nice to be home. Uh, we get along very well, which I was glad to find out because we haven't really been together for long stretches in a long time. Uh, so it's been great. It's been wonderful. I uh, I'm still not I'm still not in my um, writing. I haven't had my writing rit- ritual quite set yet because COVID's been strange. You know, it's it's uh, you have in your mind all the things you could be doing and all the time that you suddenly have to do it. But it's, it was very hard to just snap all that into place because there were so many things that were uncertain. You know, We wondered for a long time if we were gonna be teaching on campus or off. And then when they came to the conclusion we'd be teaching off, uh, it was a little bit more involved and I thought it would be transferring the classes to online. Uh, teaching online is totally different. So I'm just starting to um, compartmentalize things and say, okay, I really need to make a a bigger effort to get my own writing time together and not writing in, uh, stops and starts like I've been doing.
0: So is that, and is that something that is, it sounds like for you, you're, you have a practice that's that is you, you rely upon. Like it's, it's a pretty rich and engaged, like you're almost daily or so like you're
2: uh, I do. I, uh, I try to write 10 pages a day and it's not, uh, it's not 10 pages of, of uh, polished poetry or anything. It's 10 pages toward my art. So, for instance, if I'm writing a poem and it's got a fireman in it and I want to know what it's like to rush into a burning building and I find an interview with a fireman and I take notes, those notes are added to the 10 pages. So it's everything that eventually is going to result in a poem. Uh, and I haven't been doing that. It's been, um, it's been kind of frenetic and uh, trying to figure out um, just, uh, I can't, uh, it used to be if I didn't have the 10 pages done, I wouldn't go to sleep. I'd have to, you know, so that was my, it's like checking in for a job. And that's been more and more lax. So uh, I think I've got things and we're going to be in this position for a while. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that was it too. Not knowing, you know, tomorrow things might be different or, uh, and as you, as you watched the administration go from some semblance of prevention to, Oh, we're just going to let everybody get it. Then you realize you're going to be, this is, uh, I don't know for how long we, we've already decided that our next semester will be online. So it's, uh, and I hate, the phrase, the new normal, but that's kind of what you have to work with, you know? And so I'm, I'm coming to realize that and, and starting to say, okay, so what's my, what is my ritual going to be in this time? I'm going to be able to keep it the same, or am I going to change it somehow? I have a book that's done, uh, that was supposed to be released this year then I told him not to release it this year because it was supposed to be released around this time, Uh, right? And and this is even before we we knew about COVID, I didn't want anything released around the election because I wasn't sure how that was going to go. And and then as I was working on it and I saw this kind of endless gloom, uh, I talked to them and said, well, let's hold it until 2022. To the beginning of 2022, and so it, it gives me space to start to work on something else if I want. Uh, gives me time to sit with that manuscript in case there's something major that I want to change, uh, and gives me a chance to get my um, my rituals in order.
0: Have you ever had that? Because you have got a lot of books, like <laughs> <laughs> which reminds me, I should read your your bio as <laughs> well before oh, we okay. get too far into this. But have you ever had that that space? to, to have a manuscript where it's already its own thing. Like it's become, you know, what it is like, it's, you know, that thing in the world that is itself, but it's still near you. It actually hasn't gone to the printer or. Right.
2: So. Right. so
0: have you ever had that experience?
2: Uh, no, no. Cause okay. usually uh, I used to be in the mindset where if you didn't have a book, like every second or God forbid, third year that people would forget about you. And that was not true, but it's that idea of staying current and staying vital and staying in the conversation. So I always, uh, I, I sort of strove to have books uh, that would be released in those, you know, that time period. And this time I don't feel that kind of pressure. Mm-hmm. It's not a political book. It's not. Uh, it's not something that's that's tied to the times. I think my last, a couple of my last three books were pretty much tied to a, a, a time period, or you know events that were going on. So it was important they be released while those were. This one, it's 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 kind of more of historical, uh, but it's not tied to an event. It's um, my husband and I collect 19th century photos. And uh, one of the things that we would do with them when we first started collecting is some of them would have like a um, photographer studio and a town and sometimes a name. And we would try to trace them back to a family to get the pictures back to them, because sometimes we would find whole albums. So, and then in in lieu of doing that, I would think of these people and, and I would use them for writing exercises. I would give them to students and say, okay, your assignment, this semester is to tell me who this person is. And wow. so they, they would consider the, you know, the time period, the town, and they would look up the history and they would start to craft a life for these people. And and that's basically what this book is doing. It's taking, I think, 45, it's either 45 or 60 photos, I think. And it's, it's dramatic monologues, you know, and yeah, and they're linked structurally. Um, so with that one because i've been working on it a long time it's very important to me i wanted to come out in a time where there's some air around it you know where people can see it for what it is i just think there's so much going on now and conceivably so much going on in the next year that the the publishing arena will not be calmed down to any degree for a year or so uh where books come out as they usually do Writers are able to tour, to do book events, uh, which is so important, especially with this book. I can't really do readings for this book without doing visuals also. Yeah. So if I wasn't able to travel, it would be almost impossible to promote. So I've, I've got a lot of patience with this one and I'm trying to do some, uh, trying to write some fiction. So it gives me, uh, it gives me this year and, and next year to, to delve into something else.
0: What's the title of this book?
2: I have no idea. <laughs> the 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 working title uh was When Breath Gives Back. Uh uh that's uh, it was a a project that I had um applied to the Guggenheim with. And so it was my Guggenheim project and that was 2014. So it's been taking me a long and, and some other books that were more timely stepped in front of it for a while. Mm-hmm. And so it's taken me that long. And the one thing I didn't have that they were starting to press me on was a title. So now I've got some time for that, too.
0: Is it also, is it it invention and imagination, the stories? Or are you also researching? Because at the beginning, you said finding the people to give these photos back to.
2: Now, we could hardly ever do that okay it it was there were so many dead ends Uh, a lot of the photography studios that are named were out of business and so you try to look you know and so most of the last names were very normal last names uh and so you you think is there a prominent family or a large family here that has that last name and i wouldn't have had i think maybe in all the time we've been collecting that's happened probably about no more than five times where we're able to find someone uh but no, it's, it's, it's like, it's dramatic monologue. It's me thinking, cause we've had the photos for so long that I start to look at them and start to think, oh, this must be what this person did or what they may have done. or This, you know, he looks like he might be this or she, you know, so it's, yeah. it's, it's just dramatic monologue. It's all imagination.
0: And hearing the voice that you see, cause you've spent time with the image.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There is one that's in the book. Uh, and I'm trying to think, but we, we, had traced him his father I think had been a runaway and had spent months living in a uh, tree trunk in a hollow tree trunk uh and so I we incorporated that into that one person's into his son's story but other than that the rest of them are mostly our all imagination
0: that's oh, I love this. I love this. It, it's also incredible to think once this book comes out, if people will recognize family members and then you may have people right. reaching out to you well, as well.
2: One of the things that's interesting, I didn't think about it. I guess this this big story had come out not long ago about someone who was using one of the photos because the photos at this point are free use. Okay. You know, right. you know, right. Of course. So someone's yeah. using one of the photos and, uh, and I'm not sure in what context, but someone did recognize the person in the photo. So when my editor got this, uh, it's a different, it's kind of a different legal thing for them. I mean, mm-hmm. you, we can still use the photos creatively, uh, but they're, they're a little bit, I think they're a little bit worried about this. So mm. I, and I don't know how they're going to handle that or manage that. They, they didn't say that it would change the book in any way, but as it's something that they want in the contract, mm. uh, that, well, that's interesting. Yeah. Somebody can not yeah. probably come at us and, and try to get us to pay for using an image.
0: But I was actually, yeah, I was actually not thinking, I was thinking of it in this positive way, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not that was- sort of the legal sense <laughs> of it. Right. Yeah. But that is definitely a <laughs> uh, can't get away from that. It yeah, seems like no. anyway.
2: That that would be great. Actually, <laughs> that would be really great if that happened.
0: Well, and this is not the first book of yours with with photographs and images because you have a, a col- like a collaboration with Chicago photographer Michael Abramson. Yes, like, gotta yes. go, gotta flow.
2: Yeah, it was fantastic. Um, his uh, he's gone now. His widow, who oh, uh, had taken. Uh, he had taken a lot of photos in uh, South and West Side clubs in Chicago, and I'm from Chicago. So they were blues clubs, and I love blues. So she, at one point, they had done an album that was uh, music that was on the jukeboxes at that same time, and they had released the album in the photo book, and it had been nominated for a Grammy. So she wanted to do something else. She was wondering about having text with the photos. And so, uh, a friend of mine from chicago uh put me in touch with her, and she gave me this wonderful treasure trove of photographs uh and I was able to to uh to put text to the book you know and and talk about the heat and motion and the movement and the 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 neighborhoods as I knew them and the clubs and all that so it it was fantastic and I still think that something Uh, I feel I still think something should come from that because uh, I'm really used to thinking now when I finish a book, uh, how to make it live a little bit longer by collaborating with another genre. Uh, So I had a I had a book that was um, the book that I wrote about Hurricane Katrina, Blood Dazzler, was uh, I collaborated, collaborated with a dance troupe on that one. And so it was in a theater for about two weeks as a dance theater production. And uh and so and I'm also now collaborating with another photographer. Uh we finished one project already. Uh but it's it's how to it gives you another way to picture your work. You know, it's it's one thing to have the poem right there on the page, but it's another thing to have to see what those lines mean to a dancer, or you know, how a photographer sees them or something. So it's it's been such a revelation to be able to do that. So now when I do a book, I'm kind of automatically thinking, you know, <sighs> what is this? What does this say musically? You know, how does it look as motion? How does it, you know? Uh, because there are a lot of people wow. now that are willing willing to collaborate. Poets are funny though. They're they're kind of, uh, yeah, let's put on a show, you know. Uh, <laughs> but usually dancers and mu- musicians. They want to be paid <laughs> i mean it's, it's fun it's fun for them up to a point, but then when you start thinking about well let's put this in a theater or a club or something, and then we have to become a little bit more knowledgeable about well, where does money come from about right. r- about writing grants, grants and sponsorships and... and things like that, you know yeah, so i'm I'm getting a little bit better at at thinking that just because something looks huge doesn't mean that it's not attainable. You know right. um, the the community is such a big community, and sometimes you can just throw a question out and say, "Here's where I am. Here's what I want to do. What's my path?" And and people have done so much, you know, that you can get some pretty good some pretty good advice that way.
0: Do you think that you might be more open to collaboration or see the possibilities and embrace them for your work? Because of your sort of your your history as a, the in like the national poetry slam, mm-hmm. and and having that element like you're it seemed and tell me if I'm wrong because I'm I'm just getting to know you <laughs> <laughs> a little bit and I'm so glad it seems like your poems were never just going to be on the page they were going to be oral they were going to be about the performance mm-hmm. of them. And so do you think that's part of it? Like, cause some poets, don't, like they, they, they have the language and the music of the language, but it's not necessarily performative in that way that I imagine it had to be for you for the poetry slam. Uh,
2: what happened really is we weren't really thinking about, for lack of a better term, academic poetry, you know, it was it was more of a um a, a more of an energetic conversation. Like you really were talking to the audience as if you were saying, uh, well, look, something happened to me and I can't wait to tell you guys about it. You know? And and very often somebody in the audience would say, Wow, me too, and they start writing something and they'd get up later and they'd do a poem that just went. So it was there was a lot of energy involved. It's like a tunnel of energy going back and forth. Um, and so when somebody thought, and this was so far back, somebody at one point thought, you know, oh, we'll have a little boom box and we'll put some music behind something that we're doing. Uh, there was a house band at the place that I used to go to, and it was a long time before someone thought about having the house band hang around for the poetry, you know, and so it was, it was always um, early on trying to see what the possibilities were, but it was also the community was trying to make the reading or the music or the visuals go as far as they could. Yeah, you know, once you start to concentrate on publishing, that whole business trying to ki- kind of gets in the way, uh, but I've never stopped loving to read. And, uh, and so it's still very important to me how the audience receives the word, uh, that they see that I'm still excited about my, my own reading. You know, Sometimes I would find a poet, I would discover a poet, the book of a poet, and, uh, and then wait, and, wait until that poet comes to town and go see them. And they put the book in front of their face and they drone for 45 minutes. And so oh, nice. you, you've started to infuse the poetry with the type of voice you think that person would have. So for me, I really want the audience to hear what I heard in my head when I was writing. And so it's important to keep to to stay on that, to to keep talking to people about it. Even when you're talking about going into schools where, you know, you have an auditorium of kids at eight in the morning and they don't want to see you. you Did you
0: do like poetry in the schools? Oh, yeah.
2: When we were uh, when I was slamming, I used to go to schools all the time and and I still do. And I think what happens is that teachers can see that. I had a, a lot of the same background as some of the kids that I'm talking to, and and a lot of them are doing spoken word, and I could talk to them about the avenue from spoken word to to publications and books and and great places and you know and a lot of travel that I do things like that. Uh, so yeah, I think it's really important to stay in the schools uh, because there's there's now all kinds of um, uh, high school and, and college slams, things like that. It's really important to do that because a lot, you know, when I first started going in, one of the problems was um, a lot of the kids didn't feel like their voices were legitimate. They're looking for somebody else to give their voices to them, uh, a teacher or, you know, some authorities, you know, authority subject or something, but instead to have them realize that their their voices are strongest when they own them themselves, you know, and how much there was there, how, how much storytelling they already had to tell. Uh, and so a lot of my poems, some of them um, uh, go back to my, my teenage years, uh, what it was like for me to be, you know, 13, 14, 15 years old and, and touch on a lot of things that, you know, the kids still worry about, but, then you can go into another middle school. And because of the place where that middle school is in, the kids are a lot more plugged into the real world. And so then you're able to do poems about, I know what this life is like too. So I, I can't talk to you about the the giddy teenage ha-ha-ha things, but I could talk to you about things that you are seeing in your neighborhood, mm-hmm. you know? So yeah, I think that's where, um, the the most valuable thing i think about the poetry slam was the way that it has has lasted and grown into what every generation needs from it
0: and and like you said this idea that saying that the stories that you have the stories that are around you those are the stories that you you write about, or you, you speak about, or you write like that's, so you're actually saying this is, this is your, this is your story. This is yeah. material. You don't need to write about a field, like a field of um cro- ca- croc or irises or,
2: you know, you don't sure. <laughs> sure. I mean, I can't, I can't really do that. You know, I, I, I envy people who can write like nature poem, but I didn't, I didn't grow up in that kind of place. I grew up around concrete, Chicago. Right. Right. Uh, and, and the thing, it's not enough to tell a kid to write what you know, because sometimes what they know is very difficult. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a, it's the idea of giving them different ways to tell a story so that, uh, you know, teaching them to see, beauty and what a lot of people would think was ugly or, you you know, uh, to find an unexpected entry point for a story to say that story is really hard. Let me show you a number of ways to access it. Uh, Writing about writing what, you know, is not always easy. It's so hard for me to get, you know, even my college students to write about their neighborhoods. Uh, It's difficult to write about family uh, you know, I asked, I tell them, I said, I know every one of you has something that you would not say out, that you know about yourself, that you would not say out loud in this class. And they all do. You know, um, so what you're liable to get the first time you give them an assignment is, is some semblance of a love poem or something or, or you know, and and teaching them. How you can move your life sanely from day to day if you learn how to write about that day, however it comes, uh, whether it it's a difficult day, an uh, easy day, a day that really tries you, a day that you never think you're going to get past, a day where something tragic happens, that to know that you can approach any of those things, uh, so it's it's not just teaching I don't I don't want to teach people to to gloss over and write surface because that's what so many people are doing anyway it's that most of the writing that's going to change you is the most difficult writing to do and it's teaching them to 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 recognize those difficulties and to write into and through them
0: the writing that is going to change you Mm -hmm. is the most difficult writing to do right but but the most necessary that's right yeah it's interesting to think about you saying, Patricia that you know everyone in this room has a story that they don't want to tell and and I'm wondering if with your with your students or when you're talking with fellow poets like is it is that part of what you see is what you then really need to challenge yourself to actually be the thing. Is that part of what you think is the work of the poet in the world?
2: Um, I think the work, a poet's job is to be a witness. Yes. Okay, And you can't limit yourself to witnessing just what happens to you, you know, uh, sometimes, uh, especially when I get work from people, uh, that I'm supposed to review and you can very clearly see that they're writing towards something or around it, you know, and, and they think they're right in the midst of it and they're not.
3: Yeah.
2: Yeah. So you have to give them some sort of avenue You can say, I see it, and you know what it is. I don't know what it is, but I can see it there. Okay. And so all of the writing that we're going to do together is going to try to get you closer to that thing. And you can see it in, in the community of, of poets. It's like um, it's like coming up to a, a, a hot wall, you know, and you're writing closer and closer to the wall and then you touch it and you jump back but to know that all of the writing that you should be mining, uh, is on the other side of the wall. So how do you get over there? You know, how do you get over there? Uh, and then once you're over there, how do you stay long enough to re-experience that the things that frighten you? Or, you know, we think that, um, uh, something happens and we pave it over and we think it's gone. But once you have the tools, once you become a writer, You have the tools to confront the thing and it's up to you whether you're going to turn around and break through that pavement again. I can't be the person that I'm going to, I mean, it's my life story. Okay. So if I spend my life running away from my own life story, what have I lived? What have I done? You know, uh, and if you don't tell it, if you don't learn the best ways to tell it, you- unconsciously give permission to someone else to tell your story.
0: Or to erase it.
2: Or to erase it, right. Or yeah. to erase it. And, and there are a lot of people uh, trying to erase the stories of entire cultures, neighborhoods, you know, all the time. Uh, and, and it starts with one person. So if, if I can tell my story out loud, and without cutting corners and without fashioning it in the way that, oh, I'm telling it to this group, I have to change it in that way, or I'm telling it to that group. It's, it's hard to say some things out loud because a lot of them point to your vulnerabilities. And you, you kind of don't want to do that. But then once I write something like that and to have someone else come up and say, I have felt that way, I just didn't know there was a way to say it. Then you're building the community of witnesses you know, you're saying, yes, you know, you can say it out loud. There's a way to do that. And then somebody goes home and picks up a pen and starts to engage with the community. And, and so the community becomes stronger that way, but there's always, um, there's always something that, you know, people would think that I write about everything. There's always something you haven't accessed yet. You know, uh, I don't, I have, I don't have control or access to my entire life yet but the more I write uh the more I write toward it and that's as long as it's going toward it that's a good thing
0: yeah and as long as you know with yourself that that's that you are brave enough to keep going
2: right right because there will be a lot of uh it's it's not like you You learn the tools that you need and then you go, okay, wow, good. That's over. You know, I mean, there's a lot of, yeah, there's, there's a lot of um, there are a lot of depth to the stories and there's also always antagonist. There's always somebody pushing, you know, it's like, I don't have the nerve to tell my story. So I don't want to hear yours. I don't want to make you make me see those things. You know, so uh, and and in, in the publishing world, poetry world, publishing world, there's all kinds of weird things that sneak in. You know, there's contests and there's awards, and there's you know um, recognition and medals and all these kind of things that that sneak in and and may change the uh change the perspective or, or of someone who's who started out honestly, but then got carried away or listened to their own press releases or think about poetry like we think about so many other things as someplace where you have to strategize and and do things. So there's there are people who write poetry as a recreational activity. It's like, oh, I've got a couple of hours. Maybe I'll look in my journal and see if I can pick up a poem or so. You know, it's something they do that they enjoy. There are other people who, it is the primary movement in their life. It's it's it, it's what gives you the strength to go to the next day. So I, I have a huge poetry library. And I know for a fact that if I'm having trouble with something, there is somebody on that shelf that I can reach for who has said to, you know, to me or to their readers, what I need to hear, you know, so it, it works. It works both ways. So I could not I couldn't have a a point in my life and I won't have a point in my life where I'm not writing poetry. It's not like I'm, I'm saying, Oh, I'll do this for a few years and then I'll retire from it. She, I I can't, it's like uh, I'm, I'm plugged into it. It's like lifeblood, you know, and not only writing, but finding, uh, finding other people who have lived things that I have lived and, and making me feel like I'm not so alone, you know? So it's it's a grand community, you know, and it's just, it's open to almost anything. Um, and I think that truth is in such short supply now in a lot of arenas that uh, people who thought, oh, poets, I, uh, you know, now I see more and more people um, seeking out poets or seeking out a poet's viewpoint or set, you know, Uh, And that's been, that's been very gratifying to see.
0: Because it's, it's interesting how in poems, some of the work of poems is having this space for the necessary reader (laughs) to be part of it. I don't know, I keep saying necessary today. I don't know why, (laughs) but, (laughs) you you know, it's like the, that's when the poem will also be alive in a, a different way. Like, I think as a, I mean, it's interesting because I, I know this is kind of talking about it in multiple ways, squashed all at once, because there was a moment where you said, and I thought it was great when you were, because so often as teachers of writing, um, we're talking about audience, you know, and how you're going to tell something and who you're telling it to. And, but what I loved is that you said this this is not that time. (laughs) Um, This is not to think, how would I tell it to this particular person? It's something uh, closer to the core than that. How does this need to be said? Like, how does it need, what does the poem need? What does.
2: If I'm going to ask my students to be honest and to access things that they're frightened by, I can't be afraid to access things that frighten me and I have to show them that like there are these are places that you can go and survive you know you can tell these stories and then once uh and one of the things I do in my college class is I have a poet come in every week uh which was first of all easy because we had access to New York but now it's easy because I, I can get poets from anywhere to come and come um, to the
0: and zoom session
2: right come to a zoom session Uh, and I'm always considering the background of the poet who comes in, you know, I've had people come in who have won Pulitzers and have done, you know, but they start in a background that's, that's very, very close to the background my students have. Uh, and I, and I want them to see that the desire to tell stories is the driving force. I mean, I think we're all storytellers. We, you know, we enjoy being storytellers. Uh, it's it should be something that's natural, you know, uh, because they tend to think once you have a book, you're this, you know, oh, an author, you know, you this you, know, and and to hear how hard the book was, you know, to to get, or or uh, what it meant to put a book together, or how it was all all uh, it all began with one single poem, and and there are doubts and there are setbacks and there are you know just like there. Uh, Because, you know, I can stand in front of an audience and do a poem without looking at the paper, and it looks like I've been doing it for like, you know, 500 years. Uh, But it's because my audience is really important to me. And the more I read and internalize the work, the more I want it to feel like a conversation. I don't want them to say, oh, there is a poet reading from her book. I want them to remember the stories and not the reading.
0: And those connections, and like you were talking about earlier, that energy exchange Mm -hmm. from, yeah, yeah. The poem needs the other piece, the piece of the reader or the audience somehow.
2: Right, and and, and you have to reach out and grab them somehow. (laughs) Because most people, uh, if they're either assigned the reading, or if you are writing about something that they don't want to read about. If you're writing about, you know, um, war or racism or or something and they go, oh, not another one of those. Right. So you have to have to give your students tools to pull that reader in and then to use it myself. Like I said, uh, the classroom of, of, you know, the auditorium full of middle schoolers at eight in the morning. I can't go in there and <laughs> clear my throat and open my book and start, you know, I have to go down in the audience and start a poem from down there. I have to start with something that they go, ho, oh, whoa, wait, ho, oh, this is not poetry. This is not how I was thinking of it, you know? Um, and it's, it's the same thing when you're, you're teaching people to write, if you're going to write about difficult things, think that your audience will also think that they're difficult things to read. You know, and, and what tools, what do you have to at least get them? And before they know it, they're in the center of the poem and they don't know how they got there. It's, you know, so there's a little bit of trickery involved, you know, and that, those are storytelling tools. If you weren't just, if you weren't writing these things down and you're going to sit at a table of people and tell a story, the same things apply. So you need to have those storytelling tools, you know. So, ways to connect. Right, right. Ways to connect so that no audience, no audiences scare you. You know, you should be able to go in and say, oh, okay, I'm going into a middle school. I'm going into a school that's, you know, primarily Hispanic or primarily African-American or primarily white or, or you know, kindergartners or whatever. In your toolbox, there's something for everybody. Or a story that, you know, you can, you can start with to get them all on the same page and hopefully the page that you're
0: on. And some of that. It sounds like some of that comes from experience, like some hard-won experience, but also imagination and empathy. Uh,
2: well, thinking sense. about what I would have, uh, you know, because I went through my whole school career, through in high school and everything, and no, I didn't know about poetry. I mean, you get to the... You so get when to did the, you start writing, Patricia? Oh, what? it wasn't... Well, I used to write things when I was a kid, but not out of any... Uh, not because of anything that was happening in school. I, but, yeah. What did you write? Yeah. What? Yeah. I think it was because of my dad. You know, my dad came up from Arkansas during the Great Migration, and he was still kind of a um, uh, stories from the front porch type of a guy. You know, I mean, he would sit on. You know, he'd sit around and just say. My dad and my mom worked in a candy factory. So it would be like, oh, this is what happened in the factory today. So I started to think about all the people he was talking about as, as like characters. And it, it made me feel like every morning the slate was clean and you didn't know how it was going to be filled. You didn't know what the characters were going to do that day. You didn't, you know. And so it was, um, it gave me the idea that there were other ways to, to tell stories that weren't being covered in whatever I was learning in my, you know, in my classroom. So it would And that be, these I,
0: stories mattered too, yeah, Patricia, matter. right? Like right. they mattered because it was um, the world that was being built with mm-hmm. characters and it was your world.
2: Yeah. Well, and also keep in mind that at the time, uh, I was looking at a world on television and in most of the things that i was being assigned to read in school where the mainstream was white so some of the first things that i wrote was i was imagining myself as this girl this this typical teenage girl whose name was erica and uh And she was a cheerleader and the homecoming queen. And she had six brothers and her mother was a doctor. and Her father was a lawyer. And I would say today, Erica does cheerleading tryouts. or today, Erica wins homecoming queen, (laughs) you know, stuff like, because I I was trying to, and and it was, it's funny now. And I was, I was trying to think of how, how am I going to fit in this world that I'm seeing because I'm not seeing anybody that looks like me who fits you know and so it 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 gave me at least the idea that a world could be created it probably wasn't the right one but that that you you know it was kind of a flight of fancy that i could oops just a second i put something in front of your face uh yeah it was just a flight of fancy but yeah you know, you could do that, or you could make the neighborhood that you're living in look like that if you want. Uh, luckily, I didn't stay in that headspace. Thank goodness, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't stay in that headspace. But uh, it was kind of a magic.
0: So what broke you out of it? Because I think you were starting to talk also about not, like, not, like, being inspired in school or in high school. But so, what broke you out of that? So that you began finding your your Telling your own stories, finding your own voice.
2: Oh, I don't think. Mm, I think I was probably 30 years old. And it wasn't, I wasn't in the, <clears throat> excuse me. I wasn't in the, um, you know, the the cheerleader headspace or anything like that. But <laughs> uh, uh, just defining what success was. Let's let's
0: talk about the this book sure. in particular before we before we go. <laughs> um, cuz I feel like I've made I don't know. I yeah, I feel like we have to and okay. then we'll talk again. I sure. would love that if you're up for it. No problem at all. Um so when in incendiary art Patricia when did you know that you when did Emmett Till come into the frame of this book? <clears throat>
2: uh It wasn't until, Uh, well, I have to back up a little bit. So you, you know, the part about, uh, when black men drown their daughters. Okay. So I had one little, uh, news article that I had clipped out, uh, about a man, uh, drowning his infant daughter. And uh I didn't know at the time am I gonna write anything or not, but I had it and I kept moving it around and coming across it and then not too not too far after that it happened again. And so there were these two things and I said, Well what is this this thing? Why are these men doing this, you know? And I had to pay attention to the fact that they were both African American. Uh, And it made me think of how many of us grew up without our father in the home. And I had to ask why, what would make a father consider his daughter um, dispensable? Yeah. uh, And... and so I, I had all these, you know, things were, and so I just decided I wanted to write about the, the two different ways that this had happened before I could explore. So that, that at first was going to be the, uh, just the grounding of the book. And I was saying, well, I think I'll write poems about all the ways that, that men uh, kill their daughters. I mean, even emotionally, psychologically. Uh, right, that that's the look. That's the look everybody had when I said that. So, and then I thought about it and I said, I can't even do this. It it was such, it was such a dark place. You know, I mean, I was thinking there was another case that I knew of where uh, a guy, a father, had taken his young daughter to a casino, and then there was um, and said and asked her brother to take care brother who was not much older than she was, and there was a camera in a a restroom. She went to the restroom, and a man followed her in, and she was assaulted and killed. And I, you know, uh, and and I said, if I put my head in these places for too long, I might not get out. You know, so I I just think I thought, okay, so maybe I'll make this a section of the book. And where else can I go? Uh, at the time, it was it was around uh, probably 2000, maybe the beginning of 2016. People were starting to talk about the election. And, uh, you know, people were going around and Trump was having the rallies before he was, you know, and, and throwing black people out of the rallies. And at the same time, there were a lot of young men uh, losing their lives, not always at the hands of the police, but often. Wow. Yeah. And so um, I, I, I started thinking about uh, uh, the the black life uh and and how many ways uh to lose it. Mm-hmm. You know, and and when I came up with that wider idea for the book, mm-hmm. uh, Emmett Till happened the year I was born. And and so when I decided to have uh, uh historical elements too and to kind of go, you know, and, and and look at that that topic across time, it was natural that he would be in and it's 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 interesting too because when most people look at the book they see uh they see the sonnets as the grounding element of the book they talk mostly about the the Emmett Till the sonnets uh and and the way that uh uh I I did some more reading about Emmett and realized that his mother initially didn't want him to go to Mississippi, but wanted her, wanted him to come to Nebraska with her. And um, it gave me that feeling, it's right after a tragedy and, and people say, well, originally he was supposed to turn left or right. he wasn't supposed to be on that plane or he was, you know, uh, and which made me think about the element of chance, which led me to the Choose Your Own sure. Adventure books, that if you choose this page, this could happen, but if you turn on the wrong page, and so it's it's us going to that that inevitable conclusion by choosing the pages that lead to it. Mm-hmm. So it, it came in relatively uh, probably about midway through the process. I had to decide what the book was going to be and and make sure and, and it had to become a book where those sonnets would fit, you know, where, where it made yeah. sense to have them sprinkled throughout the book. Uh, it still was, uh, it still was a bad news book. You know, there's not a lot of light in the book. So people who were my trusted readers, you know, I, I have a couple of, of great poets who are trusted readers. My husband Kwame reads Dawes. my book. Kwame Dawes, right? Friend uh, of the show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, friend of the show. Oh, okay. Good. Hi, Kwame. Um, uh, my husband, you know, who's in journalism for 40 years, you know, he would read it and everybody would look at me like, "Uh." (laughs) some people would say, I couldn't read it straight through. I had to read some of it, put it down, pick it up again. And I wondered a little bit if that was going to hurt it, if it was just too difficult. But the thing that we talked about before about finding uh, different ways to enter the poem I said, you know, if it's going to be bad news, I have to give the reader enough variety, enough ways of making the story seem new. And sometimes it's poetry structure. Sometimes it's how it lays on the page. It's word choice. It's music. It's all those things. Um, and, and I think there was enough of that variety in the book so that the heaviness, you you knew it was going to be heavy, but each time you entered it, it was, how is this going to that it was going to be a story you knew but i wanted it to be a story you didn't know in that particular way
0: and and that when when was it that you found incendiary art because that feels like such a powerful way of describing even like how you're talking about the experience of being in the book Mm. You know, and I would imagine making these poems right. like this is incendiary. Right. And and you were talking about this. There's a, a wall that's on fire and you have to get beyond it. It's like
2: there's fire everywhere. Right. Yeah. Um, that was part of it. Uh, some of the historical things, you know, one was that m- my neighborhood blew burned down after. Martin Luther King was killed. I was in Chicago on the west side of Chicago. It burned down. It was fire for a couple of days. Uh, and then I thought about the, the four girls in Birmingham and, and, and started to think about the role of fire in so many, you know. Uh, and so I had the uh, I wanted the title to be to encompass that somehow. Um, and so incendiary came to me. And then when I thought about incendiary art, there was another book that was, so I had to decide if I wanted to have my book have the same title as another book. There was another book that was about fireworks. And yeah, I know. And so, uh, it had to be old enough. And, uh, unfortunately for the title, the the author unpopular enough (laughs) for me to use the title. Uh, and I, and I wanted there to be some sort of heat under the whole book, some under each poem. I I didn't want, I I, I wanted the reader to to kind of feel a fire burning the whole time, because one of the things that is important for the reader to understand is the book's not finite. You know, I, I wanted there to be some kind of drumbeat. The things that are happening, may seem like they're happening occasionally because every once in a while we'll see a video or there'll be a tape recording or something. But the people that I know who are living in the midst of it, it's happening. There's a staccato beat. It happens all the time. The fire never completely goes out, you know? And, and so I, I really, once you close the book, I didn't want it to be, and that's the end of that story. Yeah. Yeah. You know uh yeah,
0: and that's why i well so is that how then you came to decide what the 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 final poem of the book would be Patricia incendiary art the body
2: uh well there are there are a number of incendiary art poems throughout
0: the book oh yes but yeah but that that, yeah. that this poem it, because it does it has this <laughs> because of what yeah. you were just saying so I'm mm-hmm. sorry but it's the last lines of of this like this is ongoing I guess that's what right. I was trying to point to is like why this one might be at the very end of the book because mm-hmm. you're like this is not this is this is not over this fire
2: right, right. uh I think the turning point, uh, the the line that you are much easier to God is uh, we know that this is not all that you are, that there's innocence, there's, you know, but doesn't matter. They are looking for you, you know, and, and that they always will be looking for you uh they seem to remember you fondly and there are unstruck matches. Unstruck matches, which means someone's going to pick them up and strike them so that they can find you, you know? So yeah, I, I did think a long time about how to end how to end the book. Uh and I, I wanted it to be to feel kind of bookend, but also uh I didn't want there to be and this is the last page. Therefore, we have come to some sort of conclusion about these stories because we haven't.
0: I've loved talking with you
2: today, Patricia. <laughs> thank you. We can do it again.
0: No problem. That'd be fun. I let's let's. We're we'll gonna we're gonna put a date on the calendar. <laughs> sure. sure. <laughs> um, thank you so much, Patricia. You today, are today on Living Writers, um, Patricia Smith. We've been talking about her book, Incendiary Art, and many other things. Thanks, Patricia.
2: You're welcome.
0: I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time.
1: I say maybe. Maybe I'm in love with you say maybe Maybe I'm in love with you If you put your arms around me, I'm in love with you. You say that you believe me, that our love is true. I say maybe Chitters. My love, and a stranger. Makes me wonder if I know my own mind. Some things once important, I know them now. I wouldn't know it if the world came to an end. Yes! Yeah. The best man, you might not be the honey, but I'm looking like you are. Eyes wrinkle at the edge, some things once important. I know them now. I wouldn't know it if the world came to an end.
0: You've been listening to Living Writers. Today, Patricia Smith. Patricia Smith is a National Book Award finalist and the author of six critically acknowledged volumes of poetry. Her awards and honors include the 2014 Rebecca Johnson Bobbitt National Prize from the Library of Congress, the 2013 Lenore Marshall Poetry Prize from the Academy of American Poets, and a 2013 Phyllis Wheatley Book Award. A formidable performer, Smith has read her work at venues all over the United States and around the world. She is a Cave Canem faculty member, an associate professor of English at CUNY College of Staten Island, and a faculty member in the Sierra Nevada College MFA program. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time.
3: This is WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. We're airing selected hours from our extensive broadcast archive and new live and pre-recorded shows during the current emergency. Check our schedule at wcbn.org.
1: Wash, wash, wash your hands, got to get them clean. Every finger one by one and lather in between. Wash, wash, wash your hands, got to get them clean. Every finger, one by one, and lather in between.
3: Yeah, me too. Good morning, it's 6 o'clock. And let's see, It's uh, I believe this is our classical program, which we call Dead White Guys. So I believe... This is also Radio Verité. I want to I want to thank the person who's been here doing this very very early morning radio. I think it's a a very helpful service that people provide when they get in here and play music and sounds and noises for people at all hours. Some of the people who are here from midnight through 6 a.m. It's a special kind of service. It's a public service of Radio Free Ann Arbor. That's right. People are tuning up. You're tuned in. Dead white guys. A different host every week.